Hello everyone, it's a pleasure to be here um, in another session of our series of interviews with thought leaders and global experts for citiesabc.com, our platform to link, connect and uh, rank cities worldwide and as well a platform for social impact related uh, with the present situation in the world tar targeting our society with uh, all the advances of technology but as well as the challenges right now specifically with COVID-19 and coronavirus. Um, I'm Dinis Guarda, I'm the founder and, and uh, CEO of uh, the company that manages uh, Cities ABC and as well the organization behind this. And today we have here with us Georges Sebastian, that is a thought leader, a chief technology officer and as well a technology expert that has been working between different countries, different organizations and previously has been working with uh, one of the global technology players, Chinese uh, Huawei. Uh, George, do you want to start by small introduction and welcome to this series of interviews? Uh, my name is George. George is fine. Um, I've been in IT a little bit over 30 some years, probably getting close to 35 now. Um, I guess I had a journey of a bit like a modern Vasco da Gama. I started in Portugal, which went through its own version of the Arab Spring, I guess around 1975. So that brought us to Canada as a family. At the time, I was luggage with my parents. So it was a good choice in the sense that uh, I think Canada mixed um, with Portugal and Europe created a good background so I did my college university there and I did my first 10 years of work in Canada and across both Canada and the United States so my background is primarily initially mathematics so I graduated in mathematics co-op program from the University of Ottawa and the rest is kind of pretty much around technology. So I've spent my life um, working in technology initially in government because Ottawa is the government or federal government um, for Canada. And from there, I went to one of the largest uh, technology providers at the time, uh, which was uh, CA Computer Associates. So I actually spent close to 10 years with CA half in Canada and uh, the remaining in the Middle East. So, so after spending a good time with CA in the Middle East uh, across about 20 countries, all the way up to Pakistan, um, I founded my own cybersecurity firm called ES Golf, which I ran for about 80 years. And from there, I moved to basically a system integrator owned by um, Kuwait Finance House, ran some cybersecurity company as well. And the last um, five and a half, six years, I spent um, in Huawei as chief technology officer, and which I helped them uh, basically roll out new IT-based uh, technologies um, along with the associated um, telecommunication systems again, across the Middle East. But because of the language, being able to speak uh, Portuguese, Spanish, French, and English, and a bit of Arabic. So I, I did visit a lot of the countries that are even outside the Middle East, including the French-speaking countries and 
Africa, sometimes from time to time Asia as well. So it's been quite an interesting um, journey. Um, one of the things that I think it's amazing about you is your network and you as well leading a couple of uh, groups of technologies worldwide. And definitely, like you said, uh, being born in Portugal, but grow up and educated in Canada, uh, the US, and, and start your career there, then Middle East, China, and Africa. It's quite impressive to say less. Could you just tell us a bit about your experience, multicultural experience? Because I think, like you said, the Vasco da Gama of modern times in technology, I think it's a great metaphor for your career. But as well, at the moment, especially in the kind of crazy geopolitical world that we are, is very probably unique in history in a lot of ways because of the globalization, but as well because of the, the integration. And then being a technology person is quite uh, in quite uh, paradox because in one end you have the geopolitics, but then you have the technology that doesn't have any borders. So how we've been managing all these different cultural um, melt pods and as well these different challenges and the opportunities that are coming out of that. Actually, I think uh, one thing that is very important, one is to first understand multiple languages because that helps you communicate to the various cultures. But again, you have to immerse yourself in the cultures that you visit. I have luckily enough to visit close to 60 countries by now. And by doing that, it kind of opens your eyes. I think um, the mixture of European uh, and North American mixed uh, helped a lot in that process. Although originally I'm more of a bookworm, I think over time I've been able to kind of get a little bit out of the book and into the end zone. So being able to understand that there's a lot of nuances and uh, the way you approach various cultures, um, the way cultures use language in a very different way to to achieve their objectives. So, uh, and when we mix this with technology, I mean, technology to some extent is actually the simple part, although technology is not always, uh, you know, so friendly from time to time, but in technology, everything can always be fixed. Um, when we talk about cultural, well, it requires um, address a lot of the sensitivities, a lot of the nuances that are required when you deal uh, with uh, sometimes with various countries, regions, but also within the same country. So if you look, for example, something as simple as Saudi Arabia, which today is close to 30 million people, although it is one country, the culture itself varies quite substantially uh, from city to city uh, across Saudi Arabia. So uh, Riyadh being in the middle of the desert tends to be a little bit more closed and a little bit more harsh. Um, cities like Jeddah on the west side or Imam Kobar on the east side is being closer to the sea and being influenced by the travelers that come and go. Jeddah especially because of Mecca, a lot of people coming for pilgrimage. So that really means that they have access to cultures from all over the world. So that means it forces them to be much more open and much more sensitive how they approach and integrate uh, and have relations with these cultures. 
Certainly the last culture group that I spent more time over the last uh, six years has been Asian, Chinese, and associated cultures. Again, these again are quite different than what we have seen in Europe or North America or even the Middle East. Um, so it takes some time to get used to it. Um, but once you get used to it, um, then there is no obstacles, you know, to basically achieve what we're trying to do, which is really implement technology for a business purpose and make this technology useful in our everyday lives. So, um, speaking now on the technology, and uh, you are uh, widely and worldly known as one of the leading uh, cybersecurity experts, but as well very in deep into blockchain, crypto, and artificial intelligence. Could you tell us a bit, uh, someone that has been, first of all, in that part of the, the world that is kind of a, a fast growing, that is the Middle East, but as well coming from Canada and the US, that have been kind of the, the meccas of technology, and of course, being worked with the Chinese emerging biggest company right now in technology in the world. How you been looking at technology, first of all, from your background on cybersecurity, but as well in technology in general, and the challenges you've been seeing the last 10 or uh, 20 years um, in terms of the technology and where we stand right now? How do you see that part of that evolution to the times we are now? Well, the evolution has been quite dramatic. Um, if uh, I remember 25 plus years ago when I arrived in the Middle East, the traditional way that you would reserve a hotel room would be by a fax machine. Uh, at that time, with Computer Associates, we were even doing uh, IT support via fax. Um, the, the best bandwidth that you could get was about 14 kilobits per second. So basically dial-up and very limited bandwidth capacity. We used to not even allow downloads of images on internet pages at the time. So where today, if you drive between Bahrain and Riyadh in the middle of the desert, you're actually able to sustain a video conference call on your mobile. So you can say that the transition has been uh, quite dramatic. So IT has played a role. Of course, the Middle East having sometimes deeper pockets than most has been able to make this transformation where countries like maybe uh, Canada or even the U.S. had to go through various technologies from the original, you can say, mainframes to, to mid-range computers, personal computing, and so on. So every time you have more technology, you have to migrate these technologies. You have conversions. So there's a certain amount of entropy that slows it down. So the Middle East, to some extent, went from nothing to almost everything in a short period of time and, and has benefited from not having to do these massive conversions each time around. Um, interestingly enough, the same thing has actually happened in quite a few countries in Africa because I had the chance to visit over 20 of them. Um, as you know, most of the countries that we have in Europe, or even to some parts of Central North America, we use the traditional phone system that is based on wired technology. Well, Africa never really got 
the penetration associated with those systems. So when the mobile system came around 2G, 3G, and now 4G, and soon 5G in some countries, um, basically many countries of Africa went straight um, to the wireless system. So it was not uncommon in an African country at that time to actually have already what would look like a normal phone. But in reality, there was no wire at the end of this phone. It was actually um, wireless um, connection. So that has enabled them to sometimes also leapfrog and some of this usage of these technologies. And along with the mobile also came other approaches. One example of that being micropayments. So although sometimes Europe and even Central North America has lagged behind in some of these payments, uh, up to 10, 15 years ago, we could already make micropayments using mobile credit in certain countries in Africa. So that means they've been able to sometimes leverage simpler technology, but being able to introduce fintech technology in, in quite a simple way. Now, as we move forward with uh, certainly 4 and 5G, I think the pace uh, and the acceleration of technology uh, is accelerating or continues to accelerate dramatic. But I, I think it's more than just, it's a mixture of several all elements that bring together this perfect storm. Uh, on one side, uh, telecommunications enables us to move data around much more faster. But beyond the capability to move data in a much more faster way, we have to have the capability to store it in an inexpensive way. And if you look at the Moore's uh, law, uh, storage has actually beat uh, the, the formulas of Moore's law in the sense that the price of storage has actually decreased and in, the size of storage has increased more dramatically than according to Moore's law. So today, if you compare 10 years back, we have several factors of Moore's law as it applies to storage. So if you go and you mix that with the increase in computing power today with uh, uh, GPUs, graphic processing units or NPUs, numerical processing units, this has enabled uh, a whole new set of technologies that have been around for a number of years. One example uh, is artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence has been around for over 20, 30 years. So it's not like something that is new, but one, the advent of extra computing power, very cheap storage and the capability to move the data around that enables the AI to process more accurate results. It means you have much higher density of data and more accurate data than models that would have not have been practical 20 years ago, all of a sudden become practical and usable in modern applications, including the, the, the smart cities that you're, you're trying to, to discuss about. So um, two things on, on that part of the technology, and I think probably picking a bit of your background recently as former CTO of Hawaii. So you, you are in Middle East, like you said, in a, in, a, in a series of countries in Africa that have 
really leapfrog uh, massive because of the, the, the not having legacy systems. And as well, we've been working with a massive company that is right now became in the space of 15 years, probably the biggest tech company in the world. How do you see these changes from a geopolitical and specifically from a technology infrastructure in the cities and the countries that we've been talking? Because at the moment, we, we have this kind of very, I think in, in a lot of ways, especially if you are in the Western, you have a very narrow view of Middle East and Africa, and as well, probably very full of cliches. And someone like you that have been there for more than a decade, you have the experience not only of uh, the technology being working and implementing technology over there, but as well seeing the changes in a big scale. So how would you see that vision in terms of these countries and these um, uh, technology setups that have been going for these countries and the cities? Well, the way I see is that technology has enabled these countries or sometimes these cities to accelerate their progress at a much uh, dramatic rate uh, compared to others. And certainly to uh, cities that have benefited mostly from this accelerated pace, certainly has been uh, Bahrain and Manama uh, by becoming a banking center in the region and a fintech center. And certainly uh, Dubai has benefited a lot by coming from 25 years ago a few buildings in the desert with a population probably around three to 400,000 to now about 4 million people and being able to dramatically create um, a smart, a modern smart city by going around the world and taking the best of what has already been achieved and enhancing the capabilities uh, that have already been done in some of those countries. So, for example, if you look at some place like Dubai or even to some extent a country where or a city like Islamabad that we don't expect in Pakistan has been able to achieve um, what we call key elements of a smart or safe city uh, today. I think when we talk about smart cities, many key elements become important. One is the capability of generating data that will support the efficiency and the processes within the city. Then the capability of processing this uh, data to arrive at uh, key decisions or monetization of the data or enabling these uh, cities to operate in a more safe way. So if you look at a city, for example, like Islamabad, it has become extremely safe compared to other cities in the region simply by installing a very large number of cameras that are able to identify threats and allow the police and authorities to respond to these threats in a much more uh, timely manner and simply putting them to rest. If we take what has been done in Pakistan and we bring it to a place like uh, Dubai, you can see that in a much more ex extensive way where, for example, it's not just about uh, the safety of the city, it's about the efficiency of the city. So cities being monitored 
around the clock by cameras. Um, sometimes it's a speed camera on the highway. Sometimes it's a series of cameras inside the taxi, inside the hotels um, that enable you to, or even the cameras, for example, inside the shopping centers that allow you to uh, understand the kind of customers that you have in the shopping centers and being able to monetize the data um, even more. Um, if we talk about modern types of sensors and the implementation of 5G, we started the first trials of things like, for example, smart parking, where you actually put uh, a sensor on the ground that enables you to determine whether a vehicle is there or not. And then you can start writing applications that enable you to direct the vehicle to the next available or closest available parking spot. So where in the past, those kind of sensors and the gateways that um, uh, transport this data would have been more complex to put together with the advent of 5G, these sensors communicate directly with the cellular towers and the data centers that collect this information, number one, and specifically by using technologies like, for example, narrowband IoT, uh, it enables you uh, to have uh, much larger battery lives. So these sensors can stay on the ground for five years or more, and the batteries only use the smallest amount of power required to enable this system to function extremely well. Same thing occurs today in a shopping center in Dubai, where for example, maybe you parked your car and you don't remember where the last place you dropped your car. But if you remember a few letters or digits from your license plate, you can go to a kiosk, put uh, that information. And the cameras that are situated throughout the parking lot will enable enough information for this system to directly where you actually parked your car. So by doing um, basically uh, OCR or character recognition on the license plate, as well as the physical location of that car in the parking lot. So it will tell you, okay, it's in this spot on this floor and you don't actually have to remember it. So now if we take this to a more advanced level, we are now starting to take this into the elements that uh, make today a smart city like buildings or like the transportation system. So in buildings, we're starting to make smart buildings or smarter buildings. I think this is a process that is ongoing. It's, I don't think it's ever stopped. So in, in a smart building, again, you are introducing a whole new generation of sensors and uh, communication backbone uh, within the building itself that allow you to make much more intelligent decisions on the operation of this building. Something as simple as maybe the elevator or the way you manage the lighting system to use less electricity or the quality of the air that is being used within the building or being able to direct you as a visitor to the right location in that building. So all these 
new systems enable you to dramatically introduce a much more friendly environment in these uh, smart cities. Um, one of the things that is one of your areas of focus and expertise is cybersecurity. So how do you see cybersecurity as a whole? And you have been writing as well a book, I think is going to upcoming in the next couple of months. So how do you see cybersecurity on all this part of the, first of all, smart cities, but as well infrastructure for cities, but as well in, in our own data management and all this process, because cybersecurity right now became probably the most important thing both from a intelligence, but as well from a data management, from a business perspective and from identity. So how do you see cybersecurity being an expert and, and as well, how do you see the main trends and the main challenges and opportunities? Well, cybersecurity has always been kind of what I would call a double-edged sword in the sense that I've been involved in cybersecurity for a little bit over 20 years. And although I think we're making progress, sometimes we're losing a bit of progress in cybersecurity. So let's first start with that. So if you look at the initial systems that we had IT based on mainframes or even mid-range computers, it would have been relatively much more simpler to secure these systems because uh, everything was contained maybe in a specific physical location. But with the advent of the internet and distributed systems and networks, the footprint or the physical space under which these systems interconnected together provided the services becomes much more vast. That really means that in the modern systems that we use today, not just the ones we use in smart cities, but even the traditional modern systems that we use today based on mobile, based on cloud computing, the systems are much more vast and they have a much wider attack surface. By having a, a wider attack surface, that really means that you need to put extra mechanisms to protect these systems. Now you need to protect them from things like denial of service. You need to protect them from uh, identity or information theft. So you have to use the right level of encryption. You have to protect them from identity management perspective so that, for example, you eliminate things like impersonation or others. So this ongoing evolution in cybersecurity is always a spy versus spy in the sense that it's a race that is not finished. But as our systems become more vast and more complex and the attack services become bigger, that means we need to do a lot more work on the cybersecurity side in order for us to defend these systems effectively. And that applies to the smart cities uh, because of the storage that is being used, much vast amounts of storage. The telecommunications, including whether it's fiber, traditional communications or the 5G. Uh, 5G has got extra security built in, but because of its nature and as architecture, by using elements of things like, for example, virtualization of the network elements. So that also introduces potential areas of exposure. So that means those need to be studied and they need to be uh, tied down to minimize the amount of risk uh, associated with them. The good things is that today we have um, 
extra technologies that have come into play that have kind of enabled uh, the cybersecurity to be a little bit easier to do. One example is blockchain technology. Blockchain technology at the end of the day is a technology that brings together the elements of mathematics and encryption and connects them together in a highly distributed way. So by uh, enabling the right levels of, of blockchain within some elements of your IT infrastructure, you achieve basically higher levels of trust on the information that is being collected, information that is being transmitted or stored, and then you can provide that information in a more transparent way to the people that actually need access uh, to it. Is the job done? No, the job um, when it comes to cybersecurity is always, uh, you know, you, you should not worry about what you know. You should always worry about what you don't know because to some extent, where in the earlier days of cyber attacks, um, the kind of people that would attack you would have limited resources today. The people that could attack the modern cyber cities may have unlimited resources at their disposal, being whether they happen to be financed by cyber uh, crime, by basically cyber groups, uh, financial by crime organizations, or by um, rogue countries or enemy countries or enemy states that have basically deep and unlimited pockets to you know, finance uh, such attack activities. Um, that really means that the modern uh, smart city of today, very similar the same way we have the modern organization, should have the CISO or the Chief Information Security Officer to really understand the risks associated with, with each element uh, that is part of a smart city, and then to devise the, the right plans and the right controls to actually minimize the operational risk. I always compare cybersecurity to the thing that we use every day, which is the car. So if we take the analogy of a car, if we go back 20, 30 years, most people would not even potentially use a seatbelt to actually drive a car. However, today in the modern car that you use, not only are you wearing a seatbelt, but the modern car that you use today as a series of systems combined together to reduce your likelihood of getting injured when you actually drive that car. So that really means there's a seatbelt, it has um, airbags, uh, it has uh, um, antique um, braking locking systems to prevent you to brake more safely. It may have a, a collision avoidance system. Uh, it may have uh, some kind of artificial intelligence built in to actually help you avoid a disaster by helping you make decisions in sub-second time. Now, all these systems combined together enabled you to make your journey more safe. Like, for example, if you drive one of the modern cars like a Tesla. Now, does that really mean that driving a Tesla is 100% without risk? 
the answer is no. So if you drive uh, such a modern car like Tesla in a completely reckless way, you still end up um, injuring potentially yourself and others. So that really applies the same thing to a modern city or to the modern information systems that we use today. So we have to put the controls in place to make their operationals more safe. But at the same time, we have to operate these systems in a responsible way um, to actually ensure that the, the, they remain safe the way, the way they were designed to be. So picking on that, and I think you touched blockchain, AI, and cybersecurity, which is probably the pillars of the fourth industrial revolution, and, and of course the smart cities. So let's say as an architect of technology and as a CTO and as well a director of strategy for, for, for a lot of different things you've been doing, how do you see, the? because the challenge we have, and I think uh, picking in what you just said, so you are in emerging countries uh, right now professionally where we build a career, but the rest of the world is very fragmented when it comes to technology. And, the, and like you said, even a city like Pakistan, Islamabad, that is uh, quite dense um, and probably some, something that most of people don't even have a clue, but the rest of the country has massive challenges. So we are seeing more and more the emergence of city-states or cities uh, that are much more advanced. But then we have a very fragmented world that is full of fake news. Right now we have as well COVID-19 and the coronavirus created a, a massive divergence and, and disturbance in, in the world economy. But as well, I think one of the biggest challenges is that we have a lot of uh, lack of velocity or different velocities when it comes to technology. So you mentioned already the challenges, but how do you see this? Because this is probably one of the biggest challenges you're going to be facing is that we have people like us, and especially you that are super advanced on technology, working with cutting edge uh, organizations and cities. And then we have the rest of the world that have no clue. And this is creating a huge division and, and actually a shift of paradigm and a lot of challenges as well from an economical, technological, cybersecurity. How do you see this? Because it's a bit of quite new, and probably cyberpunk, Blade Runner scenario that we are getting in? Well, first let's start with one thing that I think you touched that I think is quite important. There is definitely in today's modern world what I would call a technology or technological divide in the sense that not every country or not necessarily every segment within every country has access to the technology or the affordable technology that they should have access to to enable them to be competitors. So yes, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of making technology affordable so that it reaches the masses. But this is an ongoing effort that I think is never stopped. Um, so a lot of work is being done for example, in Pakistan, we were looking at having the $100 mobile and basically giving it to every citizen or enabling every citizen to basically double their net worth within two years. So yes, the capability of doing such solutions is there today. But you need to have a combination of technology that we provide, the business systems and government. So I think that has to be 
quite a lot of partnership. We sometimes call this PPPs or public and private partnerships to be able to introduce these technologies and these solutions in an effective way. Because at the end of the day, the traditional governments that we have today sometimes just move too slowly, with the exception maybe of a few country states. Uh, so because they move too slow, uh, when you introduce private organizations uh, with smart and innovative cost-effective solutions, and you do the right partnership with government, then you can achieve a much faster time to market of these solutions, which also enables these uh, countries or these cities to be much more efficient and more effective. So being able to generate maybe city level revenues uh, to then provide whatever services are important to the, their citizens or their constituents. But I, I think it's important that we definitely need to address the affordability of technology through uh, innovative and creative solutions so that uh, we reduce as much as possible this technology uh, divide. So on, on that part, and I think probably right now going a bit to the, the present challenge we are in the world and as well you are in a, in a shift in your career. So, and coming back to the, the point of cybersecurity in particular and the fourth industrial revolution. So definitely right now we are in a very critical moment probably in the history of the last 200 years in a lot of ways because in one end we have some of the most advanced technology in the world but then you have a pandemic that change the entire mobility between people, cities, countries, and of course it's creating a massive uh, financial disruption, to say less. Um, so how do you see, especially the issues with, with cybersecurity, because there's a lot of right now scams and things on, that, on, on the internet, and as well a lot of issues that are going to be becoming bigger because we are all digital, this is the only way to, to move the economy. How do you see these challenges and opportunities that are coming out of this? Because at the moment, of course, especially as until the coronavirus and, and COVID-19 stabilizes, people are working remotely almost around the world and they work in technology. From Zoom that we're using right now to a lot of the technologies, there's a lot of uh, critical issues from our own data to the companies and, and the protection even case of governments using um, this kind of telecommunications that have a lot of issues. So how do you see that from the angle of the challenge and the opportunity? Because I think that's probably what is more important right now. Well, let's address each one. I, I think uh, this uh, black swan or this event that got thrown at us, it, it is uh, bad because it puts us on check. But it, it, there is a good side to it, which means that we as, as um, individuals, organizations need to be up to the challenge to fix the problems that it introduced. So let's address each one of them. So because a lot of people now are working in a cloud mode or remote from home, they're using more cloud-based technologies, uh, video conferencing systems like the one we're using right now. Each one of these is not always necessarily with the most optimal or the best uh, security. So that means we need to devise the right security awareness to enable people to do their tasks in a more 
uh, safe way by using VPNs or by enhancing uh, the uh, cybersecurity of the systems like the one we're using today. We actually even, this system itself has introduced terms that were not in our dictionary a few weeks ago. One example is something called Zoom bombing. So they actually introduced new terms that were simply not theirs. But um, the CEO of Zoom has actually been quite uh, aggressive and they have introduced mechanisms within the product to respond to these new risks. However, on the other side, I think the capability of responding to the crisis that we're going through is a combination of many things. Some low-tech things that have nothing to do with technology, like wearing a face mask, uh, one of these devices that is quite effective at reducing infection, or wearing a good pair of gloves, and those are becoming standard. Uh, you can say part of the new reality today of going grocery shopping or, um, or going on the street. But on the other side, I think the technology itself is also introducing mechanisms to defend ourselves much more effectively against this pandemic. One example, uh, countries and cities like Bahrain have introduced mobile apps to communicate with the citizens more directly to avoid exactly the situation of these scams or this misinformation that is being delivered by WhatsApp and other chain letters. So these applications also are able to do things like, for example, enforce quarantine much better. So the mobile app that you have is able to determine where you are. And if you're part of a quarantine group and you have a geofenced location where you must remain, if you go out of that location and you get contacted, they will know that the geofencing has been broken so that the right course of action can take place. In other cases, uh, this has gone beyond that even just the mobile app. Bahrain has introduced a combination of mobile app and GPS bracelets combined together to make the system even more effective. Some other countries are even considering using ankle GPS trackers to actually enforcing the quarantine mechanisms on the high risk individuals that are not respecting the rules that um, are in place. The last important aspect about these mobile apps as well is through GPS tracking, they also enable us to do what's called contract tracing. That means if by any misluck you happen to have been in contact with somebody that was later determined to be infected, then the GPS locations and the historical big data that was generated by these devices will enable you to match the, the, the GPS location of both the infected and the people that came in close proximity of these individuals. And then maybe advising these groups to maybe do some extra testing or to do some extra quarantining on themselves to basically uh, reduce any kind of likelihood of uh, faster propagation of the infections. So I, I do believe that uh, there's a lot of work being done in this area that enables us to have a whole new generation of systems. And these new systems are going to simply going to slowly become part of our daily lives. 
um, that uh, you know, in order to basically make our cities uh, and to make the livelihood of the citizens in these cities uh, more more safer on a daily basis. Well, thank you so much. There's a lot of uh, a lot of things that come to mind, and these examples are very important, especially to demystify and to understand the different ways of using these technologies. So as a last uh, approach, because we've been right now more or less for 40 minutes, um, do you want to, just for the people listening to you, uh, just highlight some of the things that you think are more important in when it comes to cybersecurity, blockchain, we didn't touch a lot of crypto and especially uh, AI. Um, just the last part on that, and then as well, well where people can find you. Not one specific technology, I think. I think the what matters today to the modern CTO is not one specific technology. Like people sometimes tend to get hang up about a specific technology, blockchain, AI, encryption, cybersecurity. It's how you combine these technologies together to achieve the objective that you have set to, to attain. So it's the creative way in which you combine these technologies together that actually matters, not a specific technology by itself. So today is not uncommon to actually have systems in smart cities that actually use all these technologies together. So on one side, you'll have big data. On the other side, you'll have AI, blockchain, and cybersecurity encryptions technologies working together to, to build the final system. So it's not one specific technology that is really designed, but it's how you use these technologies in an efficient way to achieve the the service or the business objectives that you're trying to attain. Of course, in a cost-effective way, there's always a limited budget. So, um, and wrapping up, and I think there's a lot of things we probably will come back to another session with smart cities with multiple people. But uh, thank you so much, uh, George, to wrap up. So I know that you are leading a lot of groups in WhatsApp and with experts in cybersecurity around the world and, and Middle East and so forth. Can you tell us where people can find you a bit more where I know that you are having a book coming up and different things for people to uh, find I'm you usually online? Quite, quite easy to reach uh, online, although I do lead a busy schedule. So I do believe that in today's modern world, uh, if used responsibly, social media can actually play an extremely important part of reaching the services to the right resources. So we have established several groups on various social media platforms. One is called EchoX. And what these groups allow us to do is to bring the right ecosystem on one side, of people with various backgrounds, knowledge, expertise, and to bring the right level of connections to achieve the business objective that you are. I do always understand that in today's modern business world, you really need three primary ingredients to actually be uh, successful in any venture that you do. And these really three ingredients is uh, something we referred by one of my colleagues from Riyadh, we call it MBC, money, 
brains and contacts. So on one side, you need finance to be able to achieve the objectives that you're trying to do. You need brains, which is the idea that the technology that puts all these things together. But the other missing ingredient is the contacts or the connections that enable you to have the right mechanisms to deliver these solutions to the right people that need them and to the right ecosystem of partners that enables you to, to achieve these objectives. So the kind of um, efforts that we're doing on social media, WhatsApp, Telegram, um, YouTube, Instagram, and today Zoom, are really achieving this in a much more rapid way than we were able to do it before. Oh, thank you so much. Um, we will put uh, your details of at least some of your social media in the interview and the bio of yours. We appreciate it. I don't know if you want to say something for our audience, but definitely on the Smart Seas, we'll come back with you. You are as well one of the people who deeply respect from that. So we'll come back with you. So thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Uh, I'm here good. to assist. So if you need any help, um, just uh, ring me up. And, uh, you know, if I don't always respond the first time around, just don't give up and, uh, you know, find some cycles to be able to, to attend to your pains and, and try to relieve them a little bit as much as possible. Thank you so much, George. Uh, have a good day as well and keep safe. Thank you. Thank you.